what we're about to do is a bit more technical. Uh, and so get your Bible out, turn to Revelation 8, uh, and be ready to t- think through some of these things and look at the flow of the verses in light of the context that comes before and that comes after. I've wrestled all week long, I've wrestled how technical to get. Uh, and, and, and I realized, and this is the reason we ended up working through the whole book of Revelation as we come to this section of the bigger series, is there's no way for me to address some of the things in Revelation without telling you why I'm interpreting them the way I am. And so you've got to see some of the structure today to get why I am going to speak so, uh, I'm going to see the, the, the trumpets as so symbolic, metaphorical, rather than literal. And I want you to be able to see that and understand it. If you want to take them literally and you have a a different approach, that's fine. You're welcome. I I say it all the time. You're welcome to be wrong. You don't have to agree with me on everything. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. I say that in jest. The reality is there are different views that people take when they approach the book of Revelation and they're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? I, I, I have used this illustration a number of times this week uh, in preparation, thinking of these things. And imagine what it was to be Jesus' disciples, the apostles, who were with Jesus for somewhere around three years, following him, listening to his teaching, watching his miracles, seeing his life. And then specific times, he's telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. And I'm telling you this so you can be ready. And then they're arguing, not over what Jesus is saying. It's clear that they didn't understand it until after he is resurrected. And they're able to look back and he's able to teach about this from the whole scripture. They're arguing about who's first in the kingdom. John and James's mom is going to Jesus and saying, hey, make sure my kids get a, a good seat at the table. Right? They're arguing about things that are secondary, maybe even tertiary, maybe not even on the list of valuable things. Instead of hearing their Savior say, I'm going to die in your place for your sin, I'm going to raise again, providing you victory, I'm going to conquer sin and death. They they missed it until he is resurrected, standing in front of them, and then showing them. So a lot of the ways that we're coming at at Revelation, there's a reality that we're arguing over, debating over lots of stuff that we don't really understand, but it's always pointing us to the Savior who said, I'm coming to get you right? So, so I want to show you some of the structure, not to convince you of my view, but to help you understand why I'm teaching these things the way I'm teaching them. So we're going to jump in. We're going to read Revelation 8, 1 through 12. Uh, you're gonna, I'm going to show you some of the structure and some of the ways that I think this fits together. Um, and then we're going to get to the first four seals. And then we'll be dealing with the seals over the next, and, and, there, and an interlude that comes with them over the next few weeks. So, uh, Revelation 8, 1 through 12, we'll read, we'll pray, and then we will dig in. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. And the third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and the third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the 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 star is Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth 
The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know from my own study, there is no way that we come away with this without the illumination of your Spirit giving us understanding. So I just pray today that you'd be with us, that we would glean what's true, that we'd set aside tradition, that we would understand what you would have us as your people to understand, so that rather than being committed to um, some personal perspective or personal influence, we would get to be, we would just be able to hear what's true and right, even as I present things from the perspective that I hold, I pray, Father, that you would, that you would do beyond what I can do, that, that the words that I speak would inform hearts and minds, shape us, prepare us, Father, I pray, to endure patiently and faithfully as your wrath falls on this world, that we might be light in darkness, that we might be um, kind of a kind of a, 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 a an, oasis, an oasis in the middle of a desert that we would demonstrate the the water that it, there is to drink and the the food that we have to eat. Help us be your people now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we come to these, we, we come to chapter eight, and immediately we, you begin to see, well, wait a minute, there's some relationship between the seals that we studied the last couple of weeks and the trumpets that we're going to be studying in the weeks to come. There is some relationship here between them, and you can see that because in verse one, it, we're dealing with the seal, the seventh seal, but in verse two, then we're being told about these angels who were given seven trumpets, and then it returns to prayers and, and judgments that, that I believe verse 3 through 6, or 3 through 5, I'm sorry, are probably the contents of the seventh seal. And verse 2 is being woven into that to show us and prepare us to see the next part of John's vision, which is the trumpets. I think, now, some people would suggest, well, um, the contents of the seventh seal... So each seal had some contents to it, some content to it. The first four seals had a horseman related with each seal, right? So white rider, conqueror, conquest, a, a false Christ going out conquering in Christ's name, but not really a representative of Christ, right? Like that's what we studied. The next seal, rider on a red horse, um, uh, uh, was, was con conflict, where there's war. People are killing one another. The next rider is on a black horse, right? And, and he is uh, bringing with him scarcity so that, so that the world is not producing all that is needed. And then the fourth rider on a, on a pale horse or a greenish horse is death, and Hades is coming with him, and so death comes. So then, so each seal has content to it. And some would suggest that the contents of this seventh seal is the seven trumpets. So when the seal gets broken, that results in the seven trumpets being blown, that that's the contents of the seventh seal. That's a, that's a, a, a perfectly good, perfectly, uh, the, the, the language of the text supports that. Uh, it's a common perspective. Uh, and, and that puts them in an order so that the seals immediately precede the trumpets, which then immediately precede the bowls. And so there's a linear way in which these things unfold. You have the seals unfold, then the trumpets unfold, and so on and so forth. I don't want to say that that's absolutely right. I just don't think that that's the best way to look at it. I think the relationship between these seals and trumpets is more a cause and effect relationship, yes. But I don't think it's the breaking of the seals per se. I think it's the prayers of God's 
people. So if we go back to the seals, and this is why I wanted you to open your Bible up, because I don't have all these verses on the screen. If you go back to your Bible and you start looking through the the breaking of the seals back in chapter 6, we're going to see the the four riders riding, but then we're going to see in the fifth seal, we're going to see it focus immediately on God's people under the altar, and what are they doing? Praying, pleading for justice, asking God to work right? Then the sixth seal comes, and that's the, that's the end of history as we know it. Know it. The, 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 the judgment's coming, and then we come back to the seventh seal, and I think what we see happening in the seventh seal is the, the seal is broken. There's silence. In the middle of that silence, John gets a glimpse of an angel, or, or seven angels getting seven trumpets, but then The contents of the seventh seal is reflective of an angel who's standing at the altar where the saints are praying, who takes the prayers of the saints before the Father, and the Father responds by sending the angel to throw fire, judgment, on the earth. I think what we're seeing in these trumpets is God's response to his people's prayers. So yes, there will be a day in which the day of wrath, the day of God's wrath and the, the, day, of the, the, the day of wrath of, the God, of God and the Lamb, right? That, that's the way it's phrased in the sixth seal. There is a day that's coming, a literal time, a real time in history where things will come to its fulfillment or consummation and that judgment day will occur. And though God says to his saints, rest and wait, that doesn't mean he's not working. How we see him working in response to the prayers of his people are judgments that continue in time right alongside the seals, the trumpets continue in time. And we see God answering the prayers of his people by bringing judgment on a lost world. Now, let me, see, let me show you how I come to that conclusion. And again, I know that for some of you, you're like, oh, why do I need to know this? It, it, it matters because it's going to affect how you read Revelation. So let me, let me just show you this. Their first is the, in the relationship of the seals, right? We, I'm telling you there's, there is a cause and effect nature to them. The cause is the prayer and the The effect is God's response to the prayer of his people for justice. But I think you can see that first in in that they share the same structure. So first I'm going to point out some similarities. They share the same structure. So again, go back to the seals and look at how they're ordered. The first four are clearly grouped together. Four horsemen. The, The last three are clearly grouped together, right? Because first there's the the people praying, and then the judgment day, God bringing judgment that he's uh, alluding to in the fifth seal, the actual judgment comes. And then in the seventh seal, we see also connected to the judgment day. Clearly, the, the first four and the second three are grouped together, and then seal six and seal seven are separated by an interlude. Okay? Now, if you look through the trumpet judgments, you will see the exact same structure. The first four trumpets belong together. They're in a group together. And you can see that because of their focus about how the judgment is being played out. Because they are being played out in the physical world. They are affecting the created order in some way. And then... Five, six, and seven also are grouped together in theme and in in structure, language. But trumpet six and trumpet seven are also separated by an interlude. It is the exact same structure and flow between the seals and the trumpets. And so I would suggest to you that there's some similar thing happening there that the that the writing of them and the telling of them to his people, John intends to 
to show. And here's what I think that structure, that same structure is intended to teach us. That they are addressing the same time frame. Okay. Now, I know that Let me say this. I think there's already been one graph shown. Let me just say this. It doesn't escape me the irony of drawing graphs and tables and stuff, right? Because we kind of tease about people doing that because they're trying to chart everything. I I get, I I don't don't miss the irony, but I'm trying to give you a picture that you can follow what I'm saying because I I recognize the technical nature of it. So the irony of that doesn't escape me, but So I've already addressed that most people, I think the popular position in American culture looks at these in a sequential fashion so that they address different times and seasons in the history of mankind. So the the image I brought for that, the graph I brought for that actually represents a futuristic view, a futurist's view. So here we are in the church age, right? Somewhere in the future. We are going to get the first breaking of the first seal, and there's going to be a literal riding of the first horseman, and conqueror coming out to conquest is going to begin, which is going to be followed by the second seal, by the third seal, by the fourth seal, by the fifth seal, seventh seal. And then the thought is, is that after those seals happen, well, then the trumpets start blowing, and there's a sequential flow. Probably that's the most popular view in the American church, popularized by like the Left Behind series and then just the dispensational perspectives that most people, most of the American church holds, not because they've studied something, but because it's just kind of the air we breathe. I'm telling you, and what I'm trying to suggest to you is that that's not the only view out there, and maybe, maybe it's time to consider something different, but... That affects the way we interpret this, and that's why it begins to matter. Because they think this is some futuristic point in time, most people in that view interpret these things literally. They're looking for a literal hailstorm accompanied with fire where the rain is blood. And it may not be that specific, but you get what I'm saying. There's a way in which they're looking for a literal fulfillment sometime in the future. That's never happened since Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven, so they're still looking for literal fulfillment of that. As I read this and have studied it, I believe what we're seeing is not a a sequential order of things, but John approaching the same time frame and, and, and showing us distinct perspectives and purposes that God has in that time frame so that hello okay so that what I think we see happening is we have the seals and we see and John sees them and then he begins to tell us about the trumpets but he's not talking to us about a flow of time he's talking to us about the same events from a different perspective. I illustrated that a few weeks ago with an illustration I took from Sam Storms that he talks about everybody's watching a football game. You go to the game and, and one person's on the 50-yard line. Man, they got great seats. They can so close. They can hear what's happening on the line, you know, or, or not, yeah, on the line and in the, in, in, in the team as they're standing on the sidelines. And, and then there's the, the, the field goal perspective, uh, field goal perspective. It looks long ways down the field and you're going to see different things and you're going to experience the, the game. You're going to see the game in a slightly different perspective. And then there's the blimp that's looking down on the whole thing and has a totally different perspective. And if you ask any one of those perspectives, they're going to address different aspects of the game because they saw different things as the game unfolded. I also have thought about this in terms of going to see a a, a big production like a Cirque du Soleil where there's so much happening on the stage all at one time that there's no way to describe it all without talking about the gymnasts first and, and, and then talking about the, the, the um, I don't know, the dancers next. And then, but there's too much happening all at one time. There was these people th- throwing ribbons around and there was these people being thrown into the air and there was these people, right? That there's just too much to describe without saying it 
Here's what I saw. And here's what I saw. And here's what I saw. So that what we see happening are the seals being broken and the trumpets being blown throughout the time in which Jesus has returned or Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven. And we continue to see that until his return in which we will see the final two seals, the fifth or the sixth and the seventh seal occur. In fact, this is another reason I think we have to take this um, in, in a sense that they're addressing the same things because the fifth and sixth seal reference the end of time as we know it, the final judgment. The seventh seal or the seventh trumpet entails the end of time as we know it and the final judgment. If they are sequential, what that means is there's a final judgment and then some trumpets, and another final judgment, and then some, trump, or then some bowls, and then another final judgment. What I think he's doing is telling us about the same set of events. And so, so, so I think we have to see that the same structure identifies for us the same time. But they provide us a different focus. We see different things. So one way to exemplify that is when he speaks of the seals, he first speaks of four horsemen. There's no way, and people have tried to do it, there's no way to take these first four seals and immediately assign them to the first four horsemen. But there's also no way to literally identify them as real events, like there's, there's a storm in history that got written down that there was lightning and, and hail and blood all at the same time, right? So, so there's a way in which they focus on something Different. The four horsemen speak on the powers at play. The first four trumpets speak on real things happening. Maybe not literal things happening, but real things happening in the created world. But we really see their distinction when we get to seal five. And you'll see this next week. Or seal five and trumpet five. Seal five is focused on who? The church. God's people. Trumpet five is focused on a fallen world. Seal 5 is, is given to prepare us to understand the interlude that we are safe, even as the horsemen ride, even as the world struggles and suffers and endures hardship, we are secure. The fifth trumpet reveals to us that there is no hope for a lost world apart from Christ. It focuses on judgment and wrath to come against a lost people. They have a different focus. And thereby, I think, we see that they have a different purpose. The seals reveal God's wrath against a sinful world, but show that we are secure. We are safe. We are sealed. We have been protected from his wrath, and we are being preserved for eternal life. Right? The trumpets reveal... Well, let me, just, let me just read the phrase that I got here. I, I, I got something else to say, but let me just read this phrase. In response to the prayers of his people, the seven trumpets reveal God's wrath against those whose hearts are hardened against him. That's the lesson we're going to see over and over as we study these trumpets. In response to the prayers of his people, the seven trumpets reveal God's wrath against those whose hearts are hardened against him. This vision, this, the, these trumpets, they aren't intended to give anybody confidence except in the power of God to do what he said he's going to do. It gives us confidence in the holiness of God and in the justice of God so that as we look at all the events that happen around us in the world that have been happening in the world around us in this created order, we don't lose confidence in God as God's people. But they serve as a warning to a rebellious world. There is a day of judgment coming. Today is the day to repent. But what we're going to find at the end of the seals, or at the end of the trumpets, is exactly what we found at the end of the seals. They won't repent. In fact, they'll only harden their hearts further. 
How do we see that playing out in the first four trumpets? The first four trumpets, the effect. So, so, so moving from verse 8, 1 through 5, getting that combination and understanding of how we're moving now. So he's preparing us to see that these trumpets, people need to listen. How, how, how do we see this playing out in these first four trumpets? Well, they affect everyone on the earth. They affect the whole, the, the whole realm of mankind, right? The first four trumpets affect everyone on the earth. For us, for, for within the church, these hardships refine us. They, they, they serve as reminders for us to turn to God, to pray, pray to God, to ask Him to work. They remind us of His holiness and His justice. But for the lost world, they are actual judgments. Now think about this. For every Christian that dies in a natural disaster, tornado blows through, hurricane moves in, temperatures drop and freezing happens. And a Christian dies. What's perceived as the worst thing for them in this life is gain. Because they are with the Father. They are with their Lord. But for every person who dies apart from Christ through those natural disasters, though the judgment day hasn't come in time, their judgment day has arrived. They have entered their common condemnation. Think of, the, think of the, the story that Jesus told of, of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man going out every day, seeing Lazarus by his gate, ignoring him, not paying any, any mind. And, and the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies, and they both end up in places. Lazarus ends up in paradise, in the bosom of his Lord. And he's in this place where he's in Christ's presence. <laughs> but the rich man, he's, he's thirsty, he's, he's hungry, he's miserable. Because the moment they enter, or they exit this life and enter into eternal life, they have entered into their condemnation. These are real judgments. That for every person who lives past them, that who, who, who lives through them, but continues hard-hearted against the Lord, they serve as a warning. There is a real judgment by a powerful God coming. Repent. And as we talk about it, let's just let's consider them, these first four trumpets. The, the, the first four trumpets ensure that as long as sinners inhabit the world, it will never be the home they hope for or satisfy their insatiable hearts. The first four trumpets ensure that as long as, a sinner, as sinners inhabit the world, it will never be the home they hope for or satisfy their insatiable hearts. It's ironic, really. It, it, it's, it's truly ironic. Not in a funny way, not in a humorous way, but in a de devastating or, or tragic way way. Psalm 19 tells us that, that the earth declares the glory of God. It pours forth speech day and night. We can see this through the sun that God is powerful, reigning over all things, right? <laughs> How many of us stop and think when the tornado blows our house down, when the hurricane moves in and destroys a whole town or village, that it's pouring forth speech and declaring the glory of God? Think about it. Is that any less glorious? No, it's not any less glory revealing. It's, it's, it's not any less true that God is holy and sovereign and, and sustains the world. But from our perspective, we tend to ask, where is God? Instead of say, praise God. From our perspective, we try to define the trouble away instead of recognize that the trouble is intended to call lost people to repentance. From our perspective, we tend to deny the reality of God's sovereignty over things because we think that we've got to apologize for him in it. That we've got to provide a defense against it. So that when the world comes and says, ah, suffering and hardship, well, it just proves God doesn't exist. No, suffering and hardship proves that one day God's going to judge you. Repent. God doesn't need our defense in this. His scripture is made clear in this. These things are purposeful. They are intentional. They are necessary parts of his judgment. And in fact, as we pray for God's justice, in a world that is sinful and broken, they are the means by which he is bringing that justice 
in a mediated way, in a, in a restrained way, so that his common grace on his people is still encouraged and felt as a warning. In fact, I, uh, Michael Wilcock, uh, one of the commentators that I'm reading through this, that he, he wrote, it's, it's more of a pastoral devotional commentary. I would, I would commend you, if you're going to read one commentary, if you're going to try to understand Revelation, I would encourage this one to you. He writes, paradoxically, therefore, the miseries of, of the seals and the trumpets are really kindnesses. The seals show the suffering church pleading for justice to be done, but the trumpets show the wicked world being offered mercy. Repent, repent, repent. There's a day coming where my power will not be restrained. Repent, repent, repent. The first trumpet we see, right? So we, we see these trumpets. The first trumpet we see affects the earth. And again, it's, it, it's a storm. It's, a, it's, a, it's hail and it's, it's, it's fire accompanied with blood. And it's like it, it, there's reminiscence to it. There's, there's a reminiscence to the plagues of Egypt. It's the seventh plague where there's hail and, and, and a storm that falls on Egypt. The seventh plague, in fact. A lot of people literally look forward to a, a hailstorm that could be defined this way. But I, told, I, I think, I think that this has likely been happening since Jesus' return, or Jesus' resurrection, and will continue to Jesus' return, that every time we see a natural disaster, every time we see the, the heavens unleash on the earth, we see God's judgment against the sinful hearts of rebellious people. What I want to guard us against is thinking like uh, Hurricane Katrina that comes against New Orleans. And immediately, and all New Orleans is such a sinful place. They deserved it. That's God's judgment on them. They do deserve it. It is a sinful place, but God's people still reside there too, right? <laughs> so let's, let's be careful. That's a judgment against the sin of all mankind. Missouri, Springfield, Missouri, as many churches we have here, we, we are a sinful people too. Right? So when we see those things, we shouldn't look at them and say, oh man, they got theirs. We should say, God hates sin. And he is judging it. For us, God's people, it reminds us of the day that's coming and the salvation we have but to the world, it's a message. Who has power to make the wind blow and to keep it from blowing? Who has power to direct the hurricane where it goes? You know that I, I looked this up, and I, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but somewhere around, for, for I think since they measured, I feel like it's been 20 years that I was able to find, that there's been an average of 100 storms of of significant, significant enough magnitude that they were, those storms were given names so that they could be remembered and referenced. A hundred storms a year over the last 20 years. People die in them. It cause harm. And the earth, which is intended to enable us to live in it, that was intended to provide for us, is not as habitable or comfortable or secure as we'd like it to be. In fact, I would suggest that what we see in this first trumpet is the way that God's world affects our food. All the green grass, the trees are burnt up. The things that were intended to give us food, a third of the trees, all of the green grass, our, our security, our comfort, our environment, the, the place in which we dwell is no longer as habitable as we'd like it to be. The second trumpet, we see well, the, the, the angel blows his trumpet. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, a burning fire was thrown into the sea. 
This could be a reference to, to, to a volcano, like well, uh, Vesuvius blows up and, and buries, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the city all of a sudden. Pompeii, thank you very much, all my history folks. Buries it, right? Like destroys it. Could be that. A lot of people suggest that this is actually referencing nations falling. Because like in, in Jeremiah's prophecy, Babylon is referred to as a mountain that's going to be thrown into the sea. So nations falling. I would suggest that that's probably accurate. There's a way in which we see both our food affected, the place where we eat from, but also our commerce affected. Look at what it happens. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. This place where people go out fishing, building wealth, bringing in food, right? People becoming dependent upon them. I would suggest that that's what we see happening is that this, that this place in which we live, well, there's no economic power that will stand or last. In fact, I was having this conversation earlier this week, and I was reminded of, of uh, not this conversation, but a conversation about powers that play and, and, and powers that be and nations and empires standing and falling. And I was reminded of of, of a phrase that was said to Augustine, Rome must fall because uh, God is king or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrasing. There's only one eternal kingdom. There's only one eternal commerce. There's only one eternal king. He is the God who rules. No matter how much we build, no matter how much we can conquer, no matter how much we can rule over in this world, no matter how much we can use its resources to build wealth and build power and build nations, no nation will stand. Every commerce will fall at some point. Rather than weeping over the fall of Rome or the fall of Babylon or even the fall of America, they must fall because only God is eternal. We have the first trumpet, the second trumpet, and then the third trumpet that affects not just the sea as water, but also the rivers. And again, rivers throughout the Bible reflect and represent life. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't take a genius to even recognize this because where do people settle in places? They, they settle along rivers. They become, they become ways in which we travel and places where we drink and sources of food for us. It's reminiscent of the ninth plague against Egypt, that the rivers are going to be polluted and water is not going to be worth drinking. In fact, the things that we take in to give us life will actually poison us. Any, any connection to what's happening today, that everything we put in our bodies in some way has the potential to make us sick? Think about the things we're learning about the ways that we've, even, even the treatment of water, right? When we treat water, what kind of chemicals are we putting in it that actually might be causing us harm and the water might not be as clean as we'd like to think it is? This, this, this angel blows his trumpet and, and the water, water's made bitter. Wormwood, wormwood actually means bitter. Some people suggest that this that this wormwood, this star falling, is actually an angel, and that that angel is likely Satan, and his fall brings with it bitter waters, uh, that, that the earth and, and the waters that we drink won't provide for us and actually bring death to us as opposed to life. I don't think we should take this literally. Uh, I, I think this is symbolic. I, I I don't know. I'm about 50-50 on whether or not it's a, an angel. But I think we should see and understand that rather than waiting for a day where an asteroid falls out of the sky and lands on the earth and causes the part of the rivers to be poisoned, I, I think we ought to be able to recognize that, that the place where we live, the water that we drink, the food that we eat, God is not allowing it to be as good for us as it could be as a judgment against the sin of mankind. And then we have the fourth trumpet. 
in which the sky is darkened. The, the, the fourth, verse 12, the fourth angel blows his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so the third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And again, I... I, I believe that this is probably symbolic. I b- believe that this is metaphorical. I believe it's intended to teach us something. Not that we should literally be looking for a day when a third of the sun goes out and, the, and, the, and then the night is affected. And the reason for that is that God promises Noah all the way back, and that covenant that he made with Noah is still in effect. He promises Noah this, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. I don't think we should literally be looking for a time in which all of a sudden it gets really cold because the sun's dim. Because I think God intends to preserve the earth until the day he's not preserve sinners upon the earth anymore. But, but much like the progressive nature of the Egyptian plagues, you know, at the beginning of them, they were able to, they were able to replicate them. They were able to do something through their magic arts in which they would, which they would re- reflect, oh, well, well, look, this is the answer. This is, this is what's happening. This is, we, could re- repeat, we could repeat this. Don't we do the same thing? What about all the mental health issues or the, or the, the struggles in society or the, the problems that we face in the world? Oh, man, the world is getting hotter. No, it's getting colder. Oh, well, let's just call it climate change. And we try to fix all those things. We try to suggest all the solutions. We, we medicate emotional hurts and wounds. We cover the symptoms with, with, with something that's not permanent. And I'm not speaking against those things. Don't hear that. I'm just saying that most of what the lost world is doing is just trying to address the symptom. And it doesn't ever actually correct the problem. And they're trying to define what's wrong. We depend so much on science and what we can observe, but we don't ever think about what we can't observe. We don't take into account that God has said our minds are darkened, our thoughts are darkened, our understanding is incomplete. But this is a judgment on a lost world. No matter how hard they try, The things of eternity, though written on their heart, they will never be able to fully explain away. They will never be able to suggest with any real credibility that God is not sovereign and doesn't exist. They will not be able to, with any real credibility, deny that in every act of judgment comes some reality that they can't overcome or control. They are subjected to his judgments in this world through all kinds of natural disasters and through the fact that just the very fact that the, that the, the world doesn't sustain us the way it was created to because he's keeping it by his judgment from doing just It will never illuminate us that that the general knowledge of his glory being revealed in the heavens and and, and, in the earth, the, the general revelation that occurs will never be enough to help them understand what's only revealed through the reality of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Everything a fallen world does to try to undo the judgments of God will fail and will, roll, will result in further judgment being revealed. Think about it. We've got a climate crisis. It's wonderful that a fallen sinful world understands that, hey, we've got to take care of the world we live in. I don't agree with all their terms and all the things that they're after, but what's their solution? Let's get rid of carbon Gas, carbon, carbon-based energy sources. Okay, great. So what do they do? They go to electrical energy sources as they burn a bunch of carbon resources to do it. And they mine the earth for lithium and they destroy the face of the earth in pursuit of, of these deposits that 
provide us power. And the net result is it's not going to work because God's judgment is going to fall. The first four trumpets ensure that as long as sinners inhabit the world, it will never be the home they hope for or satisfy their insatiable hearts. You think about it. In the seals, Jesus talks, and actually it's in the interlude, that, that it's revealed that through the sealing of his people, Jesus will keep the sun from scorching. He will ensure that our thirst is satisfied. Right? He tells his people, you come to me and I will quench your thirst forever. You, you, you come to me and I'll give you water to drink that, is, that, that, that you never thirst or hunger again, he tells them in John. But a lost world will only find more judgment. They will only find their desires unsatisfied. We can hear this and be terrified, and I think the lost world should. Unfortunately, those who should be terrified won't be because they think they know more than they actually do. Their minds are darkened. They don't have enough light to see. But there's still a lesson for you and me, brother, sister, Christian. There's still a lesson for you and me to hear and to see and to learn. Behind every natural event is a spiritual reality. Behind every natural event, there is a spiritual reality. God remains sovereign, has always been, and will always be. He has never relinquished his control or his power. He's never looked away. He's never gone from his. He is always at his work. The problem we face is that we have to receive this by faith at this point because there is a veil that hangs between heaven and earth. There's a separation. We can't see it. We have to hear his teaching. We have to trust him. Every natural event is a spiritual reality that will either remind us that God is sovereign and that he's answering our prayers, and he is bringing judgment on the lost world, or will remind us that we need him every day. When we're hungry, the solution isn't simply go get more food. It's to pray that our Father in heaven provides our daily bread. Let's think about it. I asked this question in the equip class earlier. We, many of us are going to get up and go, 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 to, go to a job tomorrow, right? We're going to go get a work done. We're going to go do something. And, and most of the world's out there seeking to conquer and, and bring conquest and, and try to build their own little kingdom on the earth. And they're trying to provide for themselves and they're trying to establish themselves on the earth and, and take from a, from a limited world, a, a world where scarcity is the norm, where judgment has fallen and, and tragedy occurs. And they're trying to make themselves secure in this world. God, he's not intending us to live here independently of him. Any provision that you accumulate is not the result of your doing as much as it is the result of his giving. Yes, get up and do. Go and do the work. Go and live the life you've been called to live. But as you face The realities of this life and the difficulties, remember that behind that natural event, that thing that you're experiencing is a spiritual reality and a sovereign God working. I think another thing that we can be reminded of is that this earth is not our home. At least not yet. There's a time coming where he will make all things new, where he will renew the earth and the eternal blessing. His judgment is removed. The groaning of its, its groaning under the weight of our sin and God's judgment will be removed. I mean, just imagine that. Where you go out and you put, where, where you put uh, seed in the ground and it blossoms and brings forth fruit abun- in, in abundance. And, and it's not toil and hard and, and 
It, it just is the earth doing what it was created to do. Imagine walking out into the Rocky Mountains and seeing the beauty that, that now is amazing. But then is resplendent. Like, what, what will it be like when we look into those places and see those things and the weight of sin is removed, right? Like, that's coming. This earth is not our home, at least not yet. We are citizens of his kingdom. So let's not work too hard to establish our own little kingdom now, but prioritize him and his. I think another lesson we can learn, this earth, though a wonderful gift to be enjoyed and stewarded well, was never meant to be worshipped. This earth, though a wonderful gift to be enjoyed and stewarded well, was never meant to be worshipped. The reality is, I think that, that we should be seeking to take care of and ensure that we treat this world as the gift that it is from God. As Christians, we should be concerned about what we do to it and how we use it, right? Don't misunderstand what I, as, as I, I'm not going to go there. But from the very beginning, from the very beginning, mankind has exchanged the worship of the creator for worshiping the thing he created. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it was because they desired the fruit over what God had already given them. Devotion to that piece of fruit. They believed a lie from the, from the enemy. And they devoted themselves to his word. They believed his word over God's. They submitted themselves under his teaching instead of God's. They desired what they could become apart from what God had done. He tells them, yeah, you, you'll be like God. It'd been great if, if Adam would have thought and said, hey, isn't it enough that God created us in his image? Isn't that like God enough? They desired what they could become independent of God. And we've been doing it ever since. So, though, brother, sister, Christian, enjoy this world that God has given us. But don't, don't look to it for the satisfaction and joy that comes from God alone. Steward the gift well. But don't devote yourself to it to the point that you are rejecting or denying the reality that God is at work. And when we see things happening on this earth, behind them, God is working. We don't have to cower in fear because we are secure. The church is indestructible because the God who is bringing judgment in the world is the same one sustaining us till the time he comes and makes all things new. Let's pray.